Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in Miami. Today, we're speaking with Hilary Jacobs Hendel, author of the book, It's Not Always Depression, Working the Change Triangle to Listen to Your Body, Discover Core Emotions, and Connect to Your Authentic Self, published in 2018 by Random House. Hilary Jacobs Hendel is a licensed clinical social worker who received her BA in biochemistry from Wesleyan University and an MSW from Fordham University. She is a certified psychoanalyst and AEDP psychotherapist and supervisor. She has published articles in the New York Times and professional journals. She also consulted on the psychological development of characters on AMC's Mad Men. And she lives in New York City. Hillary, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So, You've had several different stops along your journey to becoming the psychotherapist that you are now, science, biochemistry, dental surgery, social work, and then psychoanalysis. Did each of those steps contribute in some way to this book? I love that question because the answer saves me from bringing it up myself. Absolutely. That I think when I, when I saw this uh, this model, this change triangle, which in the academic literature was called the triangle of experience. I was at a conference on emotions and trauma and attachment in New York City in 2004. And I think the reason when this, when Diana Fosha flashed the slide up of this triangle, something clicked inside me and I immediately got it. And my mind was organized in a way that it had never been and I, I, it was really an aha moment. And it had to do with understanding the body because emotions are physical in nature above all. And I think that all the education that I had had in the hard sciences and neuroscience and the physiology of the body in dental school where the first two years we were with the Columbia med students in the exact same classes, I think it all came together for me very, very easily. And, um, and then from that moment on, I knew I had to learn more about emotions and this model. So one of your basic premises seems to be that emotions serve a biological purpose and ignoring or avoiding them is what causes symptoms like anxiety and depression. How did you come to realize this? And also, what's the difference between managing and avoiding your emotions? Well, to address your first question, this is nothing that came to me. I didn't. Uh, I'm, I'm a translator of information from the from the science and the academic literature to the public because these concepts are so helpful. My life really changed as a result of understanding emotions. So, and it all began really with Charles Darwin, 
who knows, maybe even before in the philosophers, but in the turn of the century, Charles Darwin write, started writing about emotions and then William James. And then with the advent of the MRI, where you could study healthy brains without worrying about irradiating people, we couldn't do that before the MRI, we began to understand how the brain was organized and that emotions were were basically transmitting what was happening in the environment through the five senses into the middle of the brain and then activating the body for an adaptive action to happen. That the, 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 the purpose of emotions, of core emotions, this special category of emotions, is to make us move and make us move quickly, more quick than our thinking brains could. So for example, when fear, when there's something menacing in the environment, uh, it, we see it or we hear it, it affects the middle of our brain, which goes to the lower brain, which connects to the vagus nerve, which activates all the organs in the body so that we can run uh, as fast as possible and as quickly as possible. If we had to think first, oh, there's something scary in the environment, I better run, we'd already be dead. So uh, over 100,000 years ago, emotion started to evolve in mammals because it allowed us to survive better than if we didn't have emotions. So it, it kind of sounds like you're saying or, or suggesting that the body is more efficient at processing certain information from the environment than our brain is and our mental apparatus is like that if we thought about it, it would take too long. So in terms of the rapidity of emotions, they, they, if we were to think our way through an emotion, it wouldn't happen as fast as you can imagine, as if the information was going directly into the limbic system of the brain that connects directly with the body. And so Nature arranged it over hundreds of thousands of years of evolution that when there is a menacing threat to our survival, that we would be able to form and make use of these things called emotions to make us run from danger, to fight predators. And from then on, other emotions evolved so that we could have rapid responses and that those responses happen happening so quickly would ensure our survival. And that is why even the word emotion comes from the Latin and French word to move. Emotions are all about affecting the body and getting the body to move for adaptive, adaptive survival. So obviously we can then understand why this, this system, this setup is, is good for us and, and protects us, but it's not hard to imagine how overuse of this system or having to go through this kind of rapid response over and over again would also at times um, backfire, like in the case of trauma. And I, I want to get to the topic of trauma in a moment, but before we do, Let's talk about the change triangle because that's really the kind of centerpiece of your book or, or the foundation for understanding everything else that you have to say about trauma and other forms of emotional distress. W what is the change triangle? Yes, it's, a, it's an excellent segue to move from this idea of the automatic nature of emotions because once we realize 
and take for granted, right? Because science is showing us that emotions just get evoked and they activate the body for movement and they activate a tremendous amount of energy, a biological energy to make us move, right? We, we need energy to pump our heart and to fill our lungs and to move our muscles. That the change triangle is really showing a map to what we do with those core emotions now in modern life, because you're you're absolutely right that the emotions adapted and evolved because they they favored us surviving. They favored human beings being able to survive over over thousands and thousands of years. But they cause problems in that they generate. They happen to us all the time based on the environment. We can't stop having emotions. They're not under conscious control, contrary to all these myths in our society that I'm really trying to help change. Myths like we're supposed to be able to control our emotions and that you're weak if you have emotions and that no matter what you're feeling, if you're, if you're a strong and resilient person, you should be able to push those emotions aside. It's just not possible because emotions aren't aren't under conscious control about whether we have them, all we can do really is recognize once they've been triggered in the mind and body, then we have some choice over how to handle them. And we can handle them in ways that restore and further our emotional health and well-being. And we can handle them in ways that are to a detriment to our immediate sense of well-being and our long-term sense of well-being. And so the way that we handle these core emotions is really what the change triangle is all about. And this goes part and parcel with understanding these invisible traumas that nobody yet really talks about, although there's a beginning movement, there's a really, a, seems to be a change coming, thank goodness, um, which I'll go into in a minute. But so the, the change triangle in a nutshell and for people listening, if you're near a, a, a smartphone or a computer, it might help because a picture's worth a thousand words to just Google an image of the change triangle. And it's basically an upside down triangle. You can imagine the point of the triangle superimposed on your body somewhere around your belly button. And then the top of the triangle, the flat top, let's say it's sitting above your shoulders. So if you were to draw a, a triangle, it would start in your body and then come up and the point would be in your body and the, and the top would be sort of sitting above your shoulders. And the reason it's upside down is at the point of the triangle are these core emotions, right? These survival, these primitive survival programs that happen to us all throughout the day. And when we avoid our emotions, which we're taught to do in our society, basically, we're taught, you know, with this mind over matter, mind over matter mentality, uh, when we block our emotions, we come up the triangle, we kind of leave our body and go into our head. And on the upper right corner of the change triangle are these, this other category of emotions called inhibitory emotions. They can squash down our core emotions, which I should say are anger, sadness, fear, disgust, joy, excitement, and sexual excitement. Those are the core emotions that have these adaptive action tendencies. And that when they flow and we listen to them, they tell us information about the environment. We can 
squash them, which we do all day long and avoid them. You could call it suppressing, repressing, burying, blocking emotions. We do it all the time. And the inhibitory emotions that help us squash our emotions are anxiety, guilt, and shame, which I'm sure are familiar to everyone listening. And on the top left-hand corner of the triangle are defenses, which are by definition anything we do to avoid emotional pain. And so defenses aren't good or bad. The, the, it's really about the, um, the amount of ways that we use inhibitory emotions and defenses when all we're doing is blocking our emotions because we're frightened of them and they are painful. And we, and we don't learn tools to work with emotions in high school, which we should be getting in high school, if not before. Uh, and that's what this book is, is meant to do. It's really provide to provide a basic emotion education for the, the everybody, the entire public, since we all have emotions. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so when we block emotions, we move up the triangle and we, we feel so crummy with this combination of core emotions wanting to come up for expression, inhibitory emotions trying to push them down. And then we all figure out ways starting in our um, infancy, childhood, on up through teens and adulthood, how to block emotions with a variety of defenses, which include you know, the sort of lighter defenses of just maybe watching something uh, uh, amusing and distracting on, on TV to global and um, really debilitating, debilitating defenses like depression, which is a way to shut down the entire system so we end up not feeling anything and being numb and lethargic to addictions uh, with drugs, which certainly do a good job of, of helping us avoid emotions. But the problem is it costs us in the long run. And so what the change triangle is about is showing a path, how to a path to coming back down into core emotions, giving people tools to deal with them. Because when we allow a core emotion to flow up and out, then there's this place on the bottom of the, tri the change triangle called the open-hearted state, which is where we all want to spend much more time, which is a calm and clear and, and compassionate and connected state of being. That is basically about the brain being much more integrated and the body being much more relaxed. I want to highlight something that you just said and and that you address pretty directly in a quote from your book that I want to read. You say, depression is not a core emotion, but a defense against core emotions. I think this is really important because a lot of people talk about depression like it is a core emotion or like it is a feeling. For instance, as when they say, oh, I feel depressed. And you're saying it's, it's, it's not actually the the bottom layer of your emotion, but it's 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 a kind of cover or 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 way of avoiding what you're really feeling. Mm -hmm. is, am I getting that right? Exactly right. And um, right, what I when people come to me and they're depressed, I I explain that so there's that's the beginning of a story of what happened to you in the environment that led to your depression, and that's where we get into these invisible traumas, which I call in the book, uh, discern the difference between a large T and a small T trauma. And I really want to clarify that trauma is trauma, whether you have one catastrophic event, like being a victim of a crime or being, um, being in a war, 
being in a war zone, right? Those are those are what the conventional thinking is of what a trauma is. But traumas are also these kind of seemingly <clears throat> invalidating events of childhood from your emotions not being recognized and validated by your parents. And not because they don't love you, but because parents don't get any emotion education either, and they really need it. Parents need an emotion education so they don't unwittingly create anxiety and depression and shame in their children. We need small amounts of shame to civilize us. But when we're shamed for what we feel and we're shamed for characteristics of our authentic self and when we're shamed for our gender and our sexuality or the color of our skin, that's that's when it creates big problems for mental health and emotional health. I can imagine some of our listeners right now hearing you and thinking to themselves, oh, come on, but so my parents didn't listen to me or so my parents weren't perfect. That doesn't mean I was traumatized. Isn't that dramatic? I, I can hear that. I feel like I have heard that mm-hmm. before. So what's what's your response to that? My response is that, yes, we are all a little bit traumatized by definition just from surviving our tri- our childhoods. And if we come to kind of reimagine the definition of trauma, uh, as I sort of think about it, is trauma is when emotions, core emotions have been invalidated so that we learn and we internalize that we have to block our core emotions, that they're unacceptable, that we're needy or weak. If we have emotions, we're needy or weak. If we if we need comfort and soothing, um, that that yes, in fact, it's a way to understand human suffering. And God knows we're in an epidemic of anxiety and depression and addiction. And it's not just because we're all genetically wired that way. It's because of what's happening to us in our dysfunctional society. And we need education and we need tools to to really know how to change the trajectory. Of, of our collective and individual mental and emotional health. And there is one thing that I wanted to clarify. You asked about a feeling versus a, an emotion or versus a core emotion. And I, I want to just clarify that, that anything we experience that we can call a feeling in our body or emotionally, like depression is a feeling. We feel depressed. But depression is a defensive feeling against core emotions, quite often anger and rage, from simple things as, again, not being validated as a a child. So I can give you an example of um, if we can take just even very uh, uh, privileged people who come from this, you know, the baby boomers who have a lot of money and who shower their children with private schools and, and exotic summer camps and and family trips. And often the, the adults that I see are quite grateful. But when they had an emotion as a, as a child, when they felt sad, for example, and uh, they were, let's just take a little boy who cried, uh, a father might tell a little boy that uh, to, to stop crying, to stop being, you know, such a sissy, don't be such a baby. We don't cry, suck it up, grow up. And repeatedly not allowing an emotion, a core emotion like sadness, which is a natural response to loss, whether it's 
the death of someone they love or whether it's the loss of a pet or whether it's the loss of a cherished toy, that that emotion, if it's repeatedly squashed or if we're humiliated for that emotion, will get buried and buried and buried with anxiety and guilt and shame and ultimately could lead to depression or other defenses like addiction or eating disorders or and so forth and so on. The symptoms we come in with serve a purpose. They're, they were at one time protective so that we wouldn't be overwhelmed with too much emotion in the face of too much aloneness, that there wasn't enough emotional support. And in a way, that's the way in AEDP, this type of therapy I practice, we define trauma by being overwhelmed by emotions in the face of unbidden, unwanted, unwilled aloneness. And it happens all the time. I'm so glad that you came back to that, uh, that way of defining trauma because I've always thought of trauma in, in that same way as an, an experience in which core emotions are activated, but to a degree at an intensity that is overwhelming. So a lot of my patients who have experienced some kind of, maybe we should say capital T trauma, Will will rightfully at times tell me that they they cannot be in touch with their anger, their sadness because it's it's too much. It's they cannot handle it. And so I wonder how like can the the change triangle if 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 your point of view is encouraging people to be in touch with their emotions. What do you say to someone who? who pushes back and argues, no, but I, I can't, you don't understand. It, it will be too much for me. Yes. What I say to them is it was too much for you at the time and that there are many ways to get reacquainted and to re-experience those emotions in a safe way. And that's the job of a trauma therapist initially. And then through that, through getting somebody through the very powerful emotions that, that are scary uh, through their traumas, then they take that, that knowledge and that skill and that practice out into the world so that going forward, they can tolerate their emotions and make space for them in, in the experiences of everyday living. But absolutely, everybody that comes in to my practice, we're all afraid of our emotions because why would it be? They're very, very painful. And again, one of my goals in writing the book, for me, when I understand intellectually something, it makes it a lot easier to tolerate. So I think being able to be with emotions starts with a left brain education in, in what I'm sharing now and more. What are emotions? And how do they work? And for example, most people don't know that a, that a true core emotion like anger or sadness or fear lasts only around two minutes and that they're wave-like in nature. So I, I tell people it's similar to when you stub your toe, right? When you stub your toe, there's, it doesn't hurt right away. It's a wave. You sort of anticipate that the pain is going to start to come and then crescendo, and then it's going to start to get better. And what, because we know that and we've had that experience, it's not pleasant, but we can breathe through it and be okay. And it's the same way with an emotion. Now, if we had trauma, we, 
because that trauma, part of that trauma is being alone with emotions, we need to be in, in a safe and secure connection with, an, with a, quote, wiser, older other that can guide us through the emotion so that we can ride the full wave of the anger and have something to do to discharge that energy. And there's many techniques in AEDP therapy that, that we learn, for example, using fantasy uh, and imagination, because the brain doesn't really know the difference when it comes to emotion processing. We can imagine uh, pushing a perpetrator off of us to heal a, a younger traumatized part when we were attacked and allow that rage and the, the physical expression of that impulse of anger to come up and out. And then if we stay with it and stay with it till all the anger is gone, we will have the experience in the here and now of that, of that anger quieting and the whole body calming down. And it's like a huge load is, is released from your full being. It's an incredible and uh, an honor to be with people as they process their emotions. And it sticks forever. It's not just, you know, when you come into a therapist's office, you can talk and talk and talk and feel better for a day, but then it all comes back. And this type of work is lasting change because we're actually fostering and facilitating positive neuroplasticity, which is brain change. And once the brain rewires in these major ways, it doesn't go back because it's a more balanced system that the brain wants to integrate, be more interconnected. So in other words, we might have a traumatized part of us from childhood that we've avoided, and every now and then it gets triggered and we feel horrible. Either some horrible shame states come up or horrible rage states. Uh, and then that child part kind of calms down and goes back to the kind of the background. When we can actively <clears throat> when we can actively bring that part and help that part heal, we're forever changed for the better. I, I want to bring attention to an aspect of your book and of your point of view that I think is super important and that gets underplayed, honestly, in conventional psychotherapy models. And that's the, that's the importance of the body. It's something that I've been getting more in touch with in, in my own work with patients. And it's a core part of your model because you're telling us that core emotions are physical sensations, which implies that in order for therapy to to work, we gotta, we have to invite our patients to really feel their emotions in their body. And I think that's something that we're collectively just not used to. So I'm wondering how do those conversations go in your practice? I mean, how do you, how are you getting your patients to, to be curious and to be still enough to to be with their physical sensations, to learn that language, and to use use that awareness productively. Uh, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, it's it's not that hard. Um, people are hungry to connect to themselves on deeper levels, and I will say that a lot of my patients come in after having years of CBT or psychoanalytic psychotherapy. And they want something that's more healing as opposed to insight-oriented. And it's really become a pet peeve of mine that CBT is, it's, quote, empirically validated. Yes, there I guess there's lots of money around. Um, there had been uh, research 
uh, and now AEDP and these other experiential modalities are having their own research because just to focus on thoughts is like trickle down economics. It, it's it's inefficient because emotions happen at the body level. So when we work at the body level, we can get rapid transformation and change. And so CBT is a is a fine modality, but it's like you said, it's half of the puzzle. Therapists need to be trained in working with thoughts and cognitions, and they need to be trained in working with emotions, and they need to be trained in working with the body and have a new understanding of trauma and of depression. Uh, there's an article called that I that I wrote for the New York Times back in 2015 called "It's Not Always Depression, Sometimes It's Shame," and it was the first time I started writing about these concepts because I someone came to me after decades of being in psychiatric hospitals and being labeled bipolar, being labeled depressed, trying every me- methodality, DBT, CBT, supportive therapy, cocktails of medications. And they were suggesting CBT, which this person didn't want to do. And they came to me and I reconceptualized based on their history that they were uh, basically suffering from childhood emotional neglect. And I treated them with ADP, basically working the change triangle and creating a safe environment to get in touch with emotions, and that person recovered. So it's very, very important and very compelling, and it really needs to be taught in, in PhD programs, and, and it's starting to, and, and master's programs. And the way that you do it is simply by creating a space for it. So a patient will come in, and they, they have their conceptions of psychotherapy. They think they, they begin telling a story. And we're trained in AEDP to not only listen, but to use our eyes to notice nonverbal behavior, which is, uh, according to some researchers, researchers, about 70% of communication is nonverbal, meaning the expressions on our faces, the tone of voice, body posture, eye gaze, and so let's say someone is telling me something about um, something that happened, and, I, and I'm looking, because I'm trained to look, I notice uh, tears welling up, or, or I don't notice anything, right? They kind of are very still and stoic. And I might interrupt or wait till they're finished and say something like, I'm so interested in everything you have to say, and... I'm wondering if we could slow way, way down and begin to also notice what's happening in your body as you share this story of how your mother used to call you names, for example, or put you down. And then I might, sometimes people can do that. Uh, Sometimes they need a little more prompting, like if you just scan your body from head to toe and toe to head, just with a stance of curiosity and compassion and for yourself, no judgment because there's no right or wrong answers, and just begin to notice what's happening. And then I might even prompt some more and if they are like, I don't really know, and I'll validate, well, that makes sense. This is not easy. No one's ever asked you how you felt in your body before, I'm guessing. Um, but if, let's say we tune around your chest area. What do you notice? Is it there's their tightness? Is there openness? Does it feel soft? Does your heart beating? What's happening to your breathing? What's happening in your stomach? What's happening in your limbs and your in your neck muscles? And you just start to educate and prompt and coach. And before long, 
with very rare exceptions, people find it very gratifying because one, when you turn attention, for example, most people come into therapy feeling anxious because it's not an easy thing to do to, to be vulnerable and to share how you're feeling. And so from the get-go, I'll validate and I'll ask, I'll validate the, that, that, that it's hard to come to a therapist and what are they feeling being here? And a lot of people will say, yeah, I feel, feel anxious. And then I'll ask where they feel that in their body, what inside their body lets them know that they're feeling anxiety. And most people say something about a tightness in their chest or the way they're breathing or something in their stomach. And then I'll say, well, if you just tune into this tightness in your chest, just gently kind of just notice it. Nothing to fix, nothing to do. Just want to give it some attention for maybe 10 or 20 seconds. And I'm right here with you. Let's just notice together what happens. And then I'll be quiet and I'll let them do that. And after 10 or 20 seconds, I'll say, what do you notice? And nine times out of 10, they'll say, I feel calmer. And that's a revelation. I remember the first time I did that at a, at a, at a training, an AEDP training, where I was guided to turn into my body about my anxiety. And I was so scared because the way that I coped with my anxiety before that was by going into my head and thinking. And then that turns into ruminations that keep us up at night and obsessive thinking. And so I remember thinking when I was asked to tune into my body, oh my God, I'm, I'm here in public in a big workshop room. And if, and if I tune into my, my, the anxiety in my chest, I'm afraid it's going to get worse. I'm afraid I'm going to get out of control. I'll be publicly humiliated. But I trusted and I dipped into my body and sure enough, my anxiety calmed down. And that has to do with bringing left brain awareness in the, the, uh, the top level of the brain, the neocortex. When we, when we bring attention to a body-based right brain experience, the body and the mind like that and everything calms down. So it's counterintuitive, but it's, it's phenomenology. It, it just works that way for us all. It's universal just like core emotions are universal. Every man, woman, and every gender in between has the same seven core emotions. And, you know, men are socialized out of feeling their tender emotions, most of them in our culture, out of feeling sadness and fear, and they're embarrassed, and that gets channeled into aggression, and it gets channeled into sexual excitement and all sorts of ways that men have found to ex find acceptable ways to get tender needs met. Same thing with women. We're socialized out of our anger and out of our sexuality in many ways because nice girls don't get angry and nice girls aren't promiscuous and all these kind of antiquated ideas uh, which sort of have nothing to do with the reality of, of why anger gets triggered and what to do with it and then how to constructively channel it. And same thing with sexuality. We're born with a disposition to feeling emotions on a spectrum. Some of us feel a lot and some of us feel a little, and that's just a genetic tendency, but we all have those same emotions. And depending on how much we have and, and the messages that we receive in our families and peer groups and society at large makes it more or less challenging to work with them and we need tools. And that's what the change triangle is about. And I'm so glad that you pointed out or our listeners, that there there is something counterintuitive 
about this model because for it to work, we, we do have to get over this myth, be willing to, to challenge this myth that becoming more aware of our emotions will make them worse, will make them intensify and will make us more uncomfortable. In reality, the opposite is true, that it, it is by leaning into them, directing our attention more in a more focused way towards them that we actually let them run their course and are able to, to get to a calmer state. Um, you know, Hillary, we're almost out of time, but I didn't want our interview to end without my asking you what you're up to now. Well, I'm continuing. I see patients. Uh, I love working with um, with adults, usually 18 and up, in my practice of AEDP. And, um, and then about the other half of my time, I'm just so passionate about sharing this basic education of emotions until our high schools start to incorporate them into the curriculum, whether it's a health class or biology, because it is biology. And if we take biology and learn that we have a heart and a stomach and an esophagus and a pancreas, <laughs> we should learn about emotions because emotions affect us every minute of every day. And so I'm really passionate about sharing this information. I, I kind of, a pet peeve now feels like a moral outrage that we don't get any emotion education in our society. And so I continue to write articles and produce videos and, and share resources on social media. And I have a blog and, um, and to try to get the word out that there's information here that's helpful, that is not only helpful, but really life-changing and life-saving in many ways. So I'd love it if, if um, whoever's listening is interested and wants to learn more. I I'd love to stay in touch and I love to hear from people. I have a blog on my website, which is uh, hillaryjacobshendel.com or thechangetriangle.com. And people can sign up to be in my mailing list and I send a new article every month and that's it. I don't sell anything uh, and I don't spam. I'm really just wanting to share emotion education. And then, of course, the book I really wrote to be a beach read. It's like, because I don't really like boring books. I, I It's filled with stories from my practice of how you work the change triangle with exercises. So the reader or the listener, because it's an audiobook, can listen along with me and try these gentle, what I call experiments, to get to know yourself in these ever-deepening ways and to understand the suffering that we all have and to know what suffering we can change and make better and what suffering we have to accept. I, I think you're so right that this should be part of children's basic education. And I hope that school board members all over the country are listening to this and, and take action based on it. Uh, I want to thank you again, Hillary, so much for being on our show. My guest today has been again, Hillary Jacobs Hendel. And the book is it's not always depression, working the, change working the change triangle to listen to the body, discover core emotions, and connect to your authentic self. Hillary, thank you. Thank you.